Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm fine. Something really intriguing happened to me this week. Oh, yeah. And I want to involve you. Go on. I looked out of my bedroom window. And you saw me. (laughs) I mean, you're there most days. Yeah. Just waiting for a friendly wave. Um, I looked out my bedroom window and on the roof of the bay window below in the guttering, I saw a cassette and I peered at it. It's called Arabesque 2 by Erkan Turgen. And I wondered if you would be interested in launching an investigative journalism podcast to find out how it got there and solve that mystery. Did it not fall out of your window then? I have never owned that cassette in my life. Furthermore, I can't remember the last time I had a cassette in my hand. How can you have seen so closely what it was? How far is the guttering from your I would window? say about three metres, and I use the zoom function on my phone. It's obviously a good zoom. Thank you. Thank you. Where? What are the sort of, you know, Inspector Lloyd, where are the possibilities? My first thought was that it had somehow become entombed in a shaft of frozen urine that had been ejected from an aeroplane, which had shattered and melted on impact, but left the cassette in the guttering. What, they flushed it down the toilet? Yes. I think that sounds unlikely. Okay, what's your explanation then? I don't know. Did you put it there to give us material for the podcast? (laughs) What about a seagull? No. You're unconvinced? Do you not like the idea of me and you as some kind of mystery-solving duo? Give me a sort of analogy. Starsky and Hutch? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was perhaps thinking more like Scooby and Shaggy. Scooby and Shaggy? Yeah. So you're, you have to be Shaggy, though, wouldn't you? That means me Scooby. It certainly does. Oh. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, well, I can tell you're not enthused. No, no, I am enthused about it. Great. Well, let's try and sell it to Spotify for $80 million. How's your week been? The good news is that I uh, cycled all the way to your house. 
on Saturday. You did, but I wasn't in. But that was okay. I mean, it was a disappointment. But so I did cycle all the way. I had a few hairy moments. It's quite uphill, isn't it, in pl- in places? It wasn't so much the uphillness of it as the sort of. Well, it's sort of City Mapper, but the good thing about City Mapper is it does give you the quiet routes. But the bad thing is if you go wrong, it doesn't seem to adjust very quickly. So you then are slightly like, where am I going? And we didn't end up with you going the wrong way up the M1 or anything like that? No, I was on slightly too busy roads. And what's that main road? Is it Stoke? The High Street, Stoke Newton High Street. Stoke Newton High Street, yeah. So I had a sort of, I was on that and that was obviously a little bit scary biscuits. If people want to spot you out in the wild doing your various forms of exercise, do you think cycling is the funniest one to see you doing? Because do you have this look of abject terror on your face? There's running, probably look slightly sort of, Pained. You know, pained. Uh, there's swimming. I look... Well, I don't look cold at the moment. Uh, I don't really look... I don't really look... Um, I feel actually relatively confident cyclist, actually. Because I'm imagining you... You know when astronauts do training and they put them in those very high G machines and you see all their kind of... All the skin on their faces being dragged back and they just look really alarmed. I'm imagining you like that on a bike. Uh, maybe it's sort of partially accurate picture. Are you using your bell much? Not in. I don't think I use my bell enough. My children and Justine think I shouldn't use the bell. It's a bit rude, the bell. I don't like using a bell. I, th- I feel the same way. Really? Maybe our listeners could tell us about bell etiquette. I think if somebody's walking in a cycle bit, then the bell is perfectly legit. Mm. Don't you think? I do, but I, I worry that I'm using it too aggressively if I'm going at it too hard. Oh, I see. I you, see. you want it to sound like the door opening in a in a dusty little grocer's shop. It's hard, though. It, I mean, that's a good point. I think, but I think it's hard. Maybe I need a hooter. <laughs> now, one thing just I wanted to mention before we get into this week's episode is we always wonder what we should do in in August because you know people are away with we're, we're away etc and we're going to do four episodes on climate and the upcoming COP um, and so Joel and I have been talking about sort of who we have on there's a cornucopia of stars obviously lining up to want to be interviewed by us but. Um, if people have particular things they want us to cover, we thought we'd look at the history of the COP, the science. The COP is the international, big international meeting this year. What, what it's why you know why it happens, the science, the politics, and you know some of the movements around it, um, and cover the climate issues more generally. But if people have things that particular guests they want to hear, um, particular issues they want us to, to to talk about, maybe they could let us know. Shall we, uh, shall, we, shall we get into what we're talking about this week then? This week we're talking about how to ensure everyone has access to the essentials needed for a decent life. A new group in the UK is campaigning for what they call a social guarantee, creating a new social settlement based on three elements, living wage jobs, universal public services and fixing the social safety net with a living income. In the past, we've discussed both the idea of universal basic income, giving everyone an unconditional at cash income and the idea of universal basic services extending the type of services that are provided by the state for free and what's interesting about the social guarantee is it incorporates elements of both we're going to be talking to Maeve Cohen from the social guarantee campaign about the idea and what it would mean in practice then we're going to be talking to leader of Camden Council Georgia Gould about a really exciting pilot of universal basic services in Camden and how she thinks local government can lead the way on the social guarantee agenda And then finally, we're talking to Sarah Arnold from the New Economics Foundation about the living income element of the social guarantee and how it could address some of the problems of our welfare state. And our cheerful person is retail expert, broadcaster and author of a new book called Rebuild, How to Thrive in the Kindness Economy, Mary Portis. 
What's your reason to be cheerful this week, then? My reason to be cheerful is about me, um, which is maybe on brand. Yeah, I, I like the guy too. So I was on the tube the other day and a man came up to me and said, oh, I really love your Ed Miliband memes video. Now, just I think I might have mentioned it to you before, but um, but not on the podcast, which is as part of the publicity for my book, which you can still buy, Go Big, um, available at all good and sound booksellers, the, the publishers asked me to do this, like, rate me, Ed Miliband memes. And the sort of funniest part of this is not me rating the memes. That's sort of moderately funny, maybe, in parts. But is as I'm coming towards the end of this, I nearly knock over the lap, the, the stool on which the laptop showing me the memes is, is fixed. Um, and, of course, I did that and then... Probably somebody at the publisher said, oh, we'll take that. We can always take that bit out. But they didn't take that bit out. So they've left it in. And actually, I wouldn't have mentioned this just because of the guy on the tube who was very nice. But last night, my son Daniel said to me, I hadn't told him about this video. He suddenly said, oh, that Ed Miliband memes video is really funny, particularly that bit where you nearly knock it over the laptop. Wow. So anyway, that I've definitely, you know, it's definitely got some coverage if Daniel's seeing it sort of, I mean, he, he wasn't anybody in the family. He must have seen it on YouTube or something. Well, I have to be honest, you know, YouTube gives you recommended videos. Yeah. It recommended it to me the other day and I thought oh there's Ed's video and isn't it about nine minutes long and I just thought I haven't got nine minutes and you did it takes a lot for me to watch a YouTube video that's longer than two or three minutes I mean that's obviously a good epitaph about our relationship quote <laughs> I, ha- I haven't got nine minutes <laughs> now what's your reason to be cheerful slightly embarrassed to say this uh, after the conversation we've just had but my documentary went out on Radio 2 last weekend about the Beatles anthology in the 90s and it's on BBC Sounds now if you want to listen to it and after it aired uh, a fellow podcaster joe wisby who is a guy who hosts a podcast called beatles books sent me a youtube link now this video was about 20 minutes long and i did watch it and it was a, a, a link to an itv documentary um from that time which was a build-up to this beatles anthology and it's lots of famous people talking about their love of the beatles and the reason it's my reason to be cheerful is it's such a strange collection of people. So it's people you'd expect like Elton John and Cilla Black and Lulu, and then some major American stars of the time like Mel Gibson, Joan Rivers, Donald Trump alarmingly uh, crops up in it. Then like 90s cool kids like Kate Moss, Jarvis Cocker, Noel Gallagher, some odd names like Ian Beefy Botham and Dennis Norden. But the the thing that I loved about it was I was watching it and there was a guy I couldn't identify. In fact, I took a screen grab and sent a picture to you, but I figured it out by the time you replied. It was the late MP for Tottenham. Bernie Grant. Bernie Grant. And he was in it singing a bit of a Beatles song, She's Leaving Home, as was the former RMT union boss, Jimmy Knapp. Wow. And... I just loved it because of what it says about how times have changed. Like, could you imagine an ITV primetime pop culture documentary featuring a union leader in it now? You know how when you sort of somebody tells you a story, there's one thing that sticks in your head. The thing that's sticking in my head is is 20 minutes. It was 20 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of really quite unfortunate timing. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, here to set out the idea for us, we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast Project Officer at the Social Guarantee, Maeve Cohen. Hello. Hi, it's lovely to be here. I say, say it's good to uh, good to talk to you again. Um, 
And this is an intriguing idea. It ties together a few different things that we've talked about in the past. Do you want to just um, give us the give us the sell for the social guarantee? What what is it exactly? Well, it's all about meeting everybody's needs. So we've known for decades. Many academics and researchers have done a lot of work to figure out exactly what it is that human beings need to be able to function in society and participate in society and live fulfilling lives. So these are not like objective wants. These are things that we absolutely have to have access to if we're going to live freely, if we're going to be able to communicate with each other, to, to have our bodies function properly. Um, and because these things are absolutely essential to living a good life and because so many people clearly, even in the UK, even a country as rich as this, don't have access to these things, that's where the social guarantee starts. So it's about saying that everybody needs to have access to life's essentials to ensure that they can live fulfilling lives. So it'd be a statement of intent for, for a country, really, to say, look, this is what everybody needs. We're going to make sure that these these needs are met as, as, as a starting point. Do you want to go through what uh, what, are, what are considered the essentials? Well, so clearly food. Everybody needs to have uh, nutritious food. We've got things like healthcare, childcare, housing, transport. In, in today in Britain, everybody needs the internet. I think that the coronavirus pandemic has made that very clear that in order to be able to do work or to be educated or to communicate with people, we need the internet. We can discuss these things and, and people can suggest new needs. So like green spaces is often people in the launch that we had last night, people were saying, how about green spaces? And that's absolutely a need. And it, sort of on green spaces, it goes without saying that none of these can be met in a planet that's burning. So making sure that they, that we're existing within planetary boundaries is absolutely essential as well. And the the idea of the social guarantee it has three strands to it. There's living wage jobs, a living income, and universal services. Um, now, universal services and universal basic income we've we've talked about before. Do you want to talk about why these three? elements are, are are what you've come up with as the pillars of it and you know why it's important to think of it both as services and incomes why why, why this particular bundle the needs are very varied i've just given you a long list of different needs and for some of these needs they're incredibly expensive so asking people individually to pay for their own health care or to pay for their own education is they're prohibitively expensive people can't do it unless they're very very rich so it's absolutely right that some of these needs should be delivered by the collective provision of services other needs food for example and um, that's based on individual preferences right we don't want to be saying right the state should be sending boxes of foods to everybody's house um that's obviously ridiculous so for these for these services that are essential but are dependent on basically having an income we need to make sure that people still have access to them and and for that that means ensuring that they have money to buy those things I mean, part of the sort of idea of this, Maeve, is to sort of, there are people who advocate guaranteed jobs at decent wages. There are people who advocate universal basic income. There are people who advocate universal basic services. And in a sense, you're trying to construct a, I hesitate to say a three-legged stool, but you're trying to, you're trying to construct a sort of an integration of the three of these, aren't you, basically? Well, to an extent, I think the, the aim of these things, so if, like, obviously you've got proponents of UBI who are on the hard right, but you've got proponents of UBI who are on the left, and the, the point of UBI is to make sure that people are secure and that they have stable lives and are able to function well. And we, we agree with that, absolutely. What we're saying is that it's not just 
enough to to give people an income similarly it's not just enough to have collective provision of all services like i was saying food's a really good example it's nuts to be delivering food parcels these things all make up a wage of some sort and be that a wage in kind or be that a wage in cash we're all trying to meet the same ends and we're just saying this is this is yeah a way to do it the end goal is that people have stable and secure lives and that's we're saying you don't need to be so prescriptive about it these are ways that we can we can approach these problems and people will do it in different ways dependent on their location dependent on their history their culture and the rest of it tell us how far maybe if it's not stating the obvious we are from this vision at the moment i were quite far <laughs> we're quite far from this vision but there are lots of really positive green shoots as as well you know of things in this sort of area and so just to be clear about this sort of living wage jobs we've got you know i think it's something like two-thirds is it of families in poverty who are at work living income we've got universal credit of soon to be 74 pounds a week yeah again um, and universal services. We know some of the issues around the services. Talk to us, though, about the kind of universal services you think we need. You've already touched on this already, but say a bit more about that. We've got things like housing. That's essential. People need housing. Obviously, people need to be well. They need health care. They also need mental health care. They also need adult social care for elderly people or people who aren't able to work. We need child care, absolutely, to, like, above all else, address the gender pay gap and the gender gender inequality um yeah as i say food internet transport people need to be able to get about they need to be able to get about in a way that's sustainable that's not going to destroy our planet so we need really an overhaul of the public transport system these things aren't new this isn't a new idea we absolutely know this to be true we know that people need these things to be able to survive and we're just saying right let's make sure we deliver those then talk to us about the role of the state in this social guarantee Yes, well, the state has a very important role. So obviously, it, at times, the state will be the deliverer of these services directly. But beyond that, the state's got like four four important things that it needs to do. So first of all, it needs to guarantee access. So if you've got systems of provision and there's some holes in it, it's up to the state to make sure that those holes get filled. So they could fill them themselves or they could support local organisations to fill them as well. Secondly, um, they need to set and enforce standards. So standards like environmental standards, employment standards, things like that. Thirdly, obviously taxation. They need to collect and redistribute funds and they need to redistribute them in an equitable way. And then last of all, they can sort of act as a convener to ensure that the the different service providers are communicating over different regions and different services to support best practice in development. I think our listeners will be really interested in this project. How can they get involved in it? Well, you can follow us on Twitter at Social Guarantee. Um, we've got a website, socialguarantee.org, and our contact details are on there. So please do get in touch. And yeah, we're this is the beginning of an idea, right? And we really want to develop this idea. It fits really nicely. It, it's purposefully malleable. It like fits with the Green New Deal. It fits with community wealth building. It fits with donor economics. It fits with all of these things. And we want to reach out to people and say like, we've got this framing, we've got this concept. We'd love to work with you to, to see how it fits in with, with your projects and what you're doing. But is it is it something you can like dip your toe in the water with or is it you have to press the big red social guarantee button like is it 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 feels a little bit like deciding 
to change which side of the road you drive on. You can't do it incrementally. You just need. To oh, you absolutely switch. can do it incrementally, though. So, so we had our launch event last night in Georgia Gold from Camden Council. I believe she's coming on this podcast. She's she on is, today. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. She'll tell you about it. She'll tell you about what they're delivering in Camden and how they started with ten people um, and giving the Moister cards. It's a radical idea in some ways, but actually, it's incredibly incremental. So we could, um, yeah, for example, just give people bits of it, see how we go. And and try what other aspects to it of it we can we can give. It lends itself to experimentation, and it and it starts. The starting point is right. What do you need? Let's try and make that happen. So we have a thing on the podcast called talking of dipping your toe in the water, uh, called the Jeffocracy Mave. I don't know whether we we may have talked to you about it last time. If we made you the sort of, I think you'd have to have a kind of relatively broad remit. <laughs> I'd call you the social guarantor. <laughs> yes, oh, very good. I'll have that. <laughs> Jeff, you're the sort of anti-social guarantee, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do the. I'd be a proponent of the social guarantee whilst being anti-social. Is that what you mean? <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe Maeve would be the social guarantor, and you'd be the anti-social guarantor. Yes, yeah. What would you do? What would you do if you could wave a magic wand? I would make it enforceable that everybody needs to have their needs met. So I'd be probably quite kind about it. I'd give people a timescale. Um, and then that would be the job of every government department is whatever their specific area is to figure out what the needs are and to support people and to meet them, basically. Well, look, Maeve Cohen, um, it's a really exciting initiative. It gives us a real framework to to, to chew on and think about uh, definitely for the uh, Jeffocracy. I think you're appointed the social guarantor. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> lovely. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, as, as Maeve said, it this is a big idea, but it doesn't need to happen all at once everywhere and some interesting uh, things are happening at local level and we're going to talk about how that is playing out in Camden Council in London with Georgia Gould who is the council leader hello Georgia hello um thanks for coming on um we'll talk about what you're doing specifically in Camden in just a second but just to get us started just from being somebody who is a leader in local government what do you think the pandemic has shown about the problems with the safety net? We've been talking about the holes in the safety net that have been exposed by COVID. Um, what, what have you seen of that? Yeah, I mean, COVID has exposed the depth of, of inequality in our society, whether it's the, the level of overcrowding people were, were faced with or just the sheer extent of poverty. You know, at the height of the pandemic, we were getting 20,000 calls and, and most of those were people who were in desperate circumstances in need of food, uh, medication. And it wasn't just that they couldn't get out because of the pandemic. These are these are long-term issues we're seeing in our communities of of, of, re- of real extreme poverty, people being forced to make impossible choices between feeding their children and buying a winter coat. And uh, I think as in local government, we're, we're more and more kind of, uh, we're almost a shadow welfare state filling in those broken bits, whether it's um, council tax reduction schemes or running huge food poverty services, we're, we're, we're stepping in where, where the, that national uh, system is, is failing, but we're not funded to, to do it. And um, yeah, it feels... It feels like what we've seen during COVID, COVID, which has just brought into sharp relief that that inequality and poverty, it should be a real moment for change. And and just on that, just before we come on to what you're doing, like we we talk a lot on this podcast about decentralisation of power. Do, do you think that stuff that is better looked after at a local level, 
or or does it feel like kind of picking up the pieces and picking up the slack where government isn't doing what it should be? I think it's definitely better looked after at a local level. I think when you talk to residents, their experience of the the welfare state and going uh, when they're in need is is that it's dehumanising, it's rigid, it, it it's focused on sanctions. You know, talking to young people, they'll say it's where hope goes to die. They they feel there's no relationship, there's no sense of who who am I as a person, and and how can we. Um, you know, meet your your aspirations and support you to get where you need to to go. So I, I know we'll talk a bit about uh, the work we're doing in Camden on UBS, but we ended up investing five million into employment support because we thought the the national system was failing and we could do it better locally. Just say a bit more, um, Georgia, about your really evocative phrase about young people saying it's where hope goes to die in terms of social security and, and the way the benefit system. Uh, works. I mean, this, I know this is something you've written about. You wrote a book called Wasted, all about young people um, and and what they were facing. Just say a little bit more about how you picked that up. Where did you? Where, what's the sort of basis of that? Yeah, I mean, I talk to young people all around the country. Um, you know, in Glasgow and in in, um, in the Welsh Valleys, um, in Bradford, and what I think they said two things that they would you know some of them had gone to university and you know they they were you know willing to do an unpaid internship um in in you know their chosen area and and what would happen is that they would go in there and they would give these are the kind of jobs you have to do and there was no support put in place to meet their aspirations and to help them get onto a career ladder and they talked about you know applying for hundreds of jobs and just getting you know not even getting anything back not even a rejection letter and how that felt and they didn't feel there was support put in for them to progress and I don't think that everyone who works in a job centre is you know bad at their job I'm sure there are so many amazing people there but there's a structural problem if you know with the system that is leaving people feeling like that you know we felt it to such an extent where we we've created an alternative system effectively in Camden so we we've invested five million as I said into an employment support service and what we have is is advisors who work out in the community so you know they'll go to um uh, a play center or um uh, you know the, the local market they'll meet people where they are they it's accessible to anyone you know you can have a degree you can um be a school leaver you can be you know 50 and been out of work for 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 10 years you know whoever you are you can you can access that service and um, they kind of design a package with that individual and put support in place, whether that's um, training or or other support, and try and match them to to a job that that works for them. And we, I think we have so far, it's only been a couple of years, but we've we've um, we've had hundreds of people who've got into work who who haven't managed to get into work during the in the kind of normal system. Let's uh, let's talk about this aspect of the social guarantee that you've been trialing. In Camden, you you mentioned it's universal basic services. So tell tell us about the the pilot that you're conducting and how you got there and how it's going. Yeah, so it, it came from this work we were doing with with employment support. So we started with a uh, with, with talking to people about their experiences. Um, I think people who had been out of work for a long time and those who were stuck in low pay. And you know, I think a, a real turning point. For me I remember being at um, a shelter and uh, where people were kind of sleeping um, in a in a church for the night and meeting someone who who had come come home come back to the shelter from a day at work 
um, who was who was homeless. And I think the kind of the, the depth and extent of in work poverty you see in, in a borough like mine in central central London is enormous. Um, so we so we wanted to do something um, yeah to support both both groups of people, people out of work and people who were in in work poverty. And and we developed this employment support service. We were seeing a kind of huge range of barriers. Um, not just to getting into work, but but just to thriving and, and living a secure life. And you know, some of the f- key things that came up time and time again were, were childcare, um, access to the internet, uh, transport costs, um, housing, um, uh, and food poverty. And we um, we were working at the time with uh, the Institute for Global Prosperity, and you know, they they had this concept of universal basic services. Uh, we had two in, in education and health, and. And uh, we wanted to to see if we could um, change things, the outcomes for people, if we if we met some of those basic needs. So we we started uh, with a very small scale uh, pilot around transport, which was literally giving ten people an Oyster card. Um, and that and but because we were in the, the height of the pandemic, we when we wanted to grow the pilot, we 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 shifted to digital access because people weren't really moving around so much. And we were we were hearing kind of experiences like you know somebody who um, who there was one device in the family and they could never do their online learning because their kids were were using the device or or uh, someone who didn't have access to the internet at home so was was paying extortionate amounts to use an internet cafe or a woman with with ADHD who um who would get these half an hour slots at the library but that just wasn't enough time to settle in so so we 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 uh, were doing a hundred person trial um, at the moment which gives people a device, Wi-Fi, but I think crucially support um, and uh, kind of upskilling and in, 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 uh, using those devices and, and their digital literacy um, to, to see what impact that has on, on supporting people into work, but, but also helping them to access other services um, uh, and, and, and shifting things for them. Talk to us about the universality of this, Georgia, I mean, well, maybe a little bit about how you pick the people, and then the sort of the the sort of what universal means in this context. Yeah, I so the the employ, the employment service called Good Work Camden is open to to anyone who 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 wants it. So anyone in Camden can come forward. So they might be somebody who's in a job, as I said, who wants to progress, or or somebody who's out of work and. Um, and and it's, it's trying to get into work, and there's there's no criteria except that they're a Camden resident. And uh, and well, Henrietta Moore, Dame Henrietta Moore from the IGP, kind of talked, uh, said said um, something to me that really helped me, um, which is she said, you know, when you when you go to the NHS, um, uh, which is a universal service, you don't all get the same thing. If you've got a broken arm, you get treated for a, for a broken arm. Um, uh, you know, but if you've got a different issue, you get treated in a different way. And so what, you know, if if the kind of issue that is preventing people getting on is digital access, then that is when the digital access package steps in. You know, in an ideal world, we would have more levers. So if it was childcare was an issue, then we would be able to support people with childcare and so on. And we can do some of that within the, the constraints that we have at the moment. But um, you know, so it's not that everybody gets every service but wherever there is a barrier that we that that we are able to kind of step in and provide that service for those who need it and how important is it that it's free at the point of use then so so it's sort of assessed according to need and it's not everybody's needs are the same but free at the point of use and how important is the free at the point of use thing do you think I, i think crucial i think that i think that these 
you know, th these services or the, you know, often the people who have that need are people who are, who are um, already kind of facing, you know, uh, poverty in different ways, but it's, um, and who wouldn't, who wouldn't necessarily, who were there, you know, they have, don't have these things because they can't afford them. Um, and I think that the, the fact that it's free um, and expressed about as a universal basic service is, is that these things are a right um, and that they are, that you should have them as well for us as a citizen or a resident of of Camden and it's not a, it's not a charity it's it's it, or you know it's it's something that you know you should have and because because you don't we are providing that but certainly I think that the, the fact that it is a free service is kind of what what gives it power. Now we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy which I think I'm going to abolish and I think we should have the Georgiaocracy instead uh, consider the Jeffocracy hereby abolished. Just from your experience so far, if the, if there's the one or two things that you could do in this area of uh, universal basic services or social guarantee, what would it what would it be? Do you think? Yeah, you know, I think that the biggest barriers we see, um, are, I think, childcare is absolutely critical. You know, I think if we could um, have a proper collective childcare in this country, I think that would transform things for for many families. I I do think access, you know access to the internet would make a big difference i mean housing is the biggest barrier that you know the, the what what really uh, stops people being able to to live kind of secure and safe lives is is housing and security so you know if i was in charge of everything you know i would do a massive council house building program i would you know deal with the private rented sector to make it much more secure um and um and affordable because you know that's fundamentally what we're seeing we are experimenting in camden with housing first we're the first borough to do that uh, which is an approach to homelessness which is actually thinking about it a kind of universal basic service so so yeah the, the number one thing would be housing but you know that is such a big and, and systemic problem that yeah i might if you we could start with we could start with with um uh, with, with, with Wi-Fi as a, as a universal basic service. Well, look, Georgia Gould, a leader of Camden, it's incredibly inspiring uh, to talk to you and hear about what you're doing. And we look forward to following the progress of your pilots and experiments as they go along. Th thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And finally, to talk further about the social guarantee and particularly the income part of it, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sarah Arnold, who's Senior Economist at the New Economics Foundation. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So we touched on this a bit with Maeve, but tell us about why we need to rethink our social safety net and about the scale of the living standards crisis uh, in the UK. The pandemic has both exposed and I guess exacerbated the living standards crisis in this country. Um, it's made it worse and it's reminded us that many of us that we're only one paycheck or two away from struggling significantly. Even before the pandemic, there are around 20 million people living below a basic but socially acceptable standard of living as measured by the minimum income standard. Um, and that's a measure that's used to determine the real living wage. It was developed by the um, Joseph Randrick Foundation. We found that the crisis has added um, at least another one and a half million people to that number figure. So that by November 2021, um, when the government support measures currently in place, that's the furlough scheme and the £20 uplift to universal credit, when they run out, um, around one in three households will be living below a socially acceptable living standard. And just to be clear about that, Sarah, that's that's over 20 million people. That is over 20 million people. It's 21.4 million people by our calculations. I mean, in a way, you know, it's easy to sort of get uh, befuddled by the numbers. But I mean, that is absolutely staggering number of people, isn't it? 
It's absolutely staggering. Um, and that also includes nearly one in two children. So it's particularly certain households are more likely to be living below a standard. Um, and children are particularly affected. Just hearing a figure really kind of hides the fact that what this actually means is that too many people need to decide between heating their homes and putting food on the table. Um, too many people are having to rely on food banks. And even if people aren't at that kind of level of complete material destitution, too many people face tremendous financial pressure and struggle when faced with any kind of emergency cost like a boiler repair or a trip to the dentist and that that kind of builds up that pressure can put a huge amount of pressure on people and it's really bad for people's mental health um, and for people's way of living I guess. And just so we understand this um, say a little bit about the 21.4 million what level they're living below how's that how's that measured calculated and so on? Sure. So we've used um, a measure called the minimum income standard, um, which is, as I said, I guess, developed by JRF. That's Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Yeah, yeah, that's the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. And it's used to determine the real living wage. And it's a needs based approach, um, which means that it basically takes as a starting point what is needed to live a a socially acceptable standard of living. Um, It basically determines a bundle of goods and services um, about what you would need to basically pay for in a week uh, and to live to a decent standard. It does differ slightly from kind of the main measures that government uses to measure poverty, um, which are more income-based measures, which means they're basically based on what average levels of income are in society. Um, They are often chosen because they're thought to be simpler and more comprehensible and less subjective. Basically, we can't know whether what level of income is sufficient um, if we don't know what a sufficient level of income actually is. And so that's why we're using this as a benchmark. It actually takes into account what goods and services are needed. And is that the basis of the living income element of the social guarantee? Yeah. So the fundamental idea behind the living income is it should set an income level below which no one can fall so that we can all survive and thrive. Um, and we say we should be fixing, doing that by fixing our broken social security system and creating new universal payments. But fundamentally, yes, it should be based on what people need. Um, that floor must be sufficient to ensure everyone can thrive and participate in society, not just kind of afford the real material basics, but properly participate um, and take into account the fact that people have, have different needs. So a family of five needs much more than a single person might. Um, and there is the minimum income standard does take into account. There are multiple different minimum income standards for different families with different needs. And talk to us then about some of the nitty gritty of this. And there is this quite complicated thing about the social security system and how you deliver a living income. And I know I've read some of your material on this. So, so just talk us through this basically about because some of it will be means tested and some of it will be universal as i understand it so in other words some of it goes to everybody and some of it done on the basis of assessing your income just talk us through that some of those issues as i said before people have very different needs in terms of what they actually need to live to have a decent standard of life and there is definitely a value in kind of universal payments to everybody um and making the system more universal um and this is the argument why many people are calling for a universal basic income is that the current system, by by kind of residualising and by being only available to certain people under certain circumstances, it, may, it attaches a stigma to it and it makes it difficult to access it potentially when you absolutely need it at your most desperate time because it's quite a complicated system. So we do think there is definitely a case for creating new universal payments um, and expanding existing ones like child benefit, which is currently paid to nearly everybody. But... 
it, that alone is not enough or, or it would not be enough in order to provide the level that everybody needs of a universal payment that's sufficient for everybody becomes very expensive because as I said a family of five needs much more than an individual person and so there is a there is definitely also a place for means-tested benefits that top people up to the minimum income standard as they need it um, so we are suggesting reforming the universal credit system increasing the value of basic payments made to families through universal credit um, and also removing some of the issues with the system that stops people accessing what they need. So removing arbitrary caps on payments that currently um, have prevent people getting um, more for more children. So there's currently a two child limit. We suggest removing that. Removing a benefit cap that just caps the amount that people get. That's also pretty punitive. Um, and we'd also say ending the unnecessary delays to say um, universal credit is unnecessary. So people have to wait currently five weeks for it. So we'd want to um, remove that. Can you say a bit more about how it's different from universal basic income? Um, because this is an idea that's come up a lot on the podcast and people are always interested in it. Can you just spell out the, the difference between a living income and a universal basic income a bit more? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that um, there is no one design of universal basic income that is agreed. Kind of, There are lots of different things that people mean when they say a universal basic income. But the starting point for universal basic income, I guess what's common against all proposals as far as I can see, is its universality. So the main point of universal basic income is it's focusing on trying to make sure that everybody gets some support. The main focus of the living income is to just to take a slightly different starting point and a slightly different end point. We're aiming to make sure that everybody has access to a, um, a level of income that's sufficient so it's focusing on adequacy, making sure that everybody's got enough to meet their needs. And as part of that, we definitely think there's a role and that we're interested in exploring is more universal payments, as, as I said, to ensure that everybody um, gets a little bit and everybody's more involved in the system. But the key focus of a living income is the living part, is making sure that people have a decent standard of living. And a lot of universal basic income proposals are much more about the universality. You know, something that comes up when we talk about big ideas like universal basic services or an income is is cost. And because this idea of a social guarantee takes elements of both, does that mean it's nearly twice as expensive? Have you sort of run, run the costs of this? Well, there's definitely, um, I think in some ways they work in complements to each other. Because um, what you need to have a decent standard of living can either be provided through services or it can be provided through cash. Um, so our current system, for example, um, some people get housing benefit and some people um, live in social housing. And if you live in social housing, you don't need to access the housing benefit. So they kind of sit alongside each other. So that's why we think living income goes hand in hand with universal services. Well, Sarah Arnold from the New Economics Foundation, thank you so much for giving us such a clear picture of what it could look like to implement some of these ideas. Thank you. Well, what did you think? I'll tell you what I was reminded of was the Finnish episode uh, or the episode on homelessness in Finland where you take a problem like homelessness and you think, okay, what's the, what's the solution? Oh, it's give people homes. And what's the solution to meeting people's essential needs? meet people's essential needs and I really like the size of that as an idea and I like the way that as the conversations went on it went from feeling to me anyway like oh wouldn't it be lovely but is it a bit pie in the sky to 
hearing how it can be trialed and rolled out incrementally at a local level. I found Georgia just incredible to talk to. Um, I think it's more than just a, a, a frame, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I agree with you. I thought Georgia was really inspiring in the things that she's doing and the way she explained it. And I thought that the point that she attributed to Henrietta Moore, you know, about, you know, just because a service is universal, it doesn't mean everyone gets the same thing because it's based on their needs. So there's a distinction between your needs and it being free at the point of use and, and her perspectives on that. And it was just really interesting. I think the other thing, though, this framework is really interesting because it's sort of, you know, jobs should be decently paid. There should be a living income for everybody, whether you're in work or not. And we need good services. Now, it sounds sort of simplistic, but I don't think it is actually that simplistic. And it's quite a long way from where we are. I do quite like the sort of framework of it, actually. Look, I mean, there's lots of unanswered questions, including about the sort of politics of persuasion and, and all of that. But it definitely makes you think, doesn't it? Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, as ever, we would love to hear from you. We like nothing more than the ping, ping. of an email turning up in the email box. Ping. Actually, email doesn't tend to do that so much anymore when you use webmail, does it, sadly, or, or gladly? No. You can get a ping put on it. Um, anyway, we, we love to hear from you. If you've got thoughts yeah. on the social guarantee or uh, anything else we've talked about recently or anything we haven't talked about that you'd like us to, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com, including your thoughts on uh, anything that's contained in Ed's book. And on that subject, this comes from David Harpen, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. I am a relatively recent and now avid listener to the pod, so naturally was thrilled to get a signed copy of Go Big for my 30th earlier this month. 
I know how to party. As expected, it's been brilliant and invigorating so far. Excellent. But what was not expected was that my internal reading voice is the voice of Ed. Wow. I'm sure that Dr. Schuess would say, there's an Ed in my head. Bizarre. Am I the only one? Is there help available? Keep up the good work, says Dave. That's interesting. So when people are reading your book, are they hearing your voice in the head? Or, for example, are they hearing Barry White? (laughs) I got really into Barry White as a result of him appearing on Ali McBeal. Do you remember? Ah, That was a good show, wasn't it? David says, by the way, P.S., your narration is welcome for the duration of the book, Ed. Uh, If it extends beyond this, you can expect a follow-up email with a considerably more stern tone. In other words, he's worried that you might start becoming his entire inner monologue. Is this like being John Malkovich? Yes. Remind me what happens in being John Malkovich. I'll be honest, I just said yes to move Uh, the conversation along. I've seen that film, but I struggle to remember. Me too. But anyway, it's a bit being John Malkovich. (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, This one comes from Gabriel Shamash. Um, And it says, charity fundraising idea. Will Ed, this is the message, do a swim-off with Alistair Campbell to raise money for charity? Jeff could be the referee. And this is just the sort of thing that could cheer people up. Jeffery the referee. I think, obviously, you'd have to be swimming too to make sure that there was no sort of jiggery-pokery. No, I would be sitting on one of those high chairs like a, a Baywatch. I think it's a long distance from Baywatch, really. Yeah, are you and Alistair Campbell running in slow motion in skimpy costumes? Yes, yeah, it's, it's not really Baywatch, is it? Greywatch? Greywatch. <laughs> oh, very good, Greywatch. It's from Baywatch to Greywatch. Honestly, <laughs> that's what you get the big bucks for. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. For our cheerful person this week, we are thrilled to have the author of a new book, which is called Rebuild, How to Thrive in the New Kindness Economy. It's, uh, it's, it's a great book about how we could be thinking about the world post-pandemic, and it's really practical as well. It is a joy to welcome Mary Portis. Hello. Hello. Thank you for, uh, thanks, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Um, I'm excited to talk about the book. Before we do that, just with your other hat on, Ed, for the last few years, has been pitching an idea for a business. I have told him repeatedly that this business has no future and he'd, he'd be bankrupt <laughs> within months. Um, Ed, do, do you want to tell Mary your well, idea? Okay, it was it was pre-COVID. Uh, this this I just want to sort of make this clear. The premise was Mary. This is like Dragon's Den, and Jeff just wants to humiliate me. The premise was um, that the the, the nicest shop bought sandwich you've ever made is not as nice as the nicest homemade sandwich you've ever made. So you, you should have a make your own sandwich shop. We've had listeners from all around the world email in about their own make-your-own-sandwich shops in their own countries. Some most of which, most have of which have gone bump. Most of which have not done that well. And, and to be clear say, here, Ed hasn't just okay. reinvented Subway. He's talking about people getting their hands into the ingredients. If you want Mary to just humiliate me. Jeff. No, I'm, I'm just thinking of it, you see, because the minute you say that, I ha- I always think in a visual sense, because it's like, so, oh, okay, and one of the greatest businesses obviously was prep the way that it really did 
create those incredible sandwiches, lunches, quick, fresh. You felt that it was always coming out and there was the newness about it. And they are particularly tasty. I have been a, a major fan of that business and he made quite a bit of money. So we won't throw the, 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 the baby out of the bathwater just yet, Ed. But here's the thing, I think. When you go in and you've got to make it, you a you've got to have the time, so there needs to be a speedy and efficient way that you're going to get people. Yeah, to yeah. Where you start you, to then start yeah. losing a bit of margin, yeah. and then you might have someone who's faffing and fanning about, and you're behind them, and then they've taken the last bit of sourdough, and that's what you wanted in your bread. So all of this, I start to get oh god, and then I think of how you visualize it and have all the different mixes because someone might want a no bit of Branston pickle, and someone might say actually I'm really into this particular type of mayo. And it's very difficult to make that stuff look fabulous because you'll have drips of people stuffing stuff down. Bits of egg mayonnaise will be wedged on the top of the table. And I just find the whole thing would just not look rather gorgeous. So sorry, Ed. Um, I That's just, a maybe. I'm not even <laughs> sure it's a maybe. That's very kind of you. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Well, look, I, I will go on to I was getting excited there because I love a good business idea. I think we should move on to Mary's book, Jeff. You're right. So, so let's, let's, I mean, the book starts with you talking about how you've changed on retail over the years. And, you know, you've, you've had quite the journey. A lot of people will, will, will know your story. Um, you went from being creative director of Harvey Nichols to being in this position where you've written a book advocating for the, the new kindness economy. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you've, you know, where you came from and how you got there? Uh, well, I mean, I started off in retail. I was on the management training scheme at Harrods and I ended up, my last retail job was creative director of Harvey Nichols. And I loved retail because to me, it's about all the different senses at play when it's done well. I had a playground at Harvey Nichols for years where I just instinctively did stuff that was, I, I would say, without sounding too lofty, was kind of linked to the cultural zeitgeist and it just felt of the moment and wonderful. Um, and but the byproduct was, of course, that you were selling stuff and that you were making a profit, which you know, most businesses are. Nothing particularly wrong with that, except I didn't really think of the impact of what I was doing. And I don't think anybody really did 20, 30 years ago. This was the time of, you know, conspicuous consumption, status symbols. And, you know, what you bought really sort of said where you were in the world. Um, you know, and if you had your Gucci if you had your sunglasses that had whatever logo on it. And um, it just got out of hand. I believe we are shifting into that we're becoming a kinder society. Now, you might not think that when you look at our government or you look at, you know, the Trumps of the world. But I think we're, we're, we're really dividing into those who give a shit and those who don't. And those who do are becoming kinder. And we are therefore needing to create an economy, I believe, that represents this shift in how we're living and how we're now connecting with goods and what we buy. And we are seeing more and more better companies that are creating businesses that are thriving and do well for society and social progress, as well as their bottom line. That's that's the basis of the kindness economy. What we as people need to think about how we buy, who we buy from, and businesses to create businesses that put people and planet before profit. Now, I read your book, Mary, partly as a sort of handbook mm. for businesses who want to do the right thing. Mm. Is, that, mm. is, that, is, that, is that kind of partly? 
Yeah, because it's not just like everybody thinks, oh, this is all about sustainability. Those goals of sustainability are, are deep and difficult and they're going to take a long, long time. But we can start somewhere. It is a handbook and it was um, we've tried to really because I worked on it with my team. It was, you know, we, we've been doing this stuff for about five years now, and but we hadn't put it into a a book and it's we're learning more and more and more and more it's, it's not a, this is a journey there's, there's no end answer on this and what I've really tried to do on this is to say hey, this is where we are now here are the things that I've learned that we've learned and the businesses that I've spoken to and work with globally what they're doing the good ones and uh, so that people can dip in dip out and, and try some of this and, and what is your advice for we you know for the listeners of our podcast about what they should do as consumers there's one line that I've always said when I did it in my TED talk, you know, the pound you spend is a vote on how you want to live. It's as simple as that. Look at the way, and you'll know this, on the high streets, we haven't got high streets that are fit for purpose of how we live today. And so, of course, the easy option is to go on the internet. You know, and of course, every time we press that button on the internet and we know that the taxes aren't being paid anywhere near enough that are being put the same pressure on independence, we're kind of going, but I've got no choice. I've got no choice. Because actually so much of the way that I would like to spend isn't fit for the way my life is today and the speed of my life and the busyness of my life. So there is this is just the start of so much change that needs to happen. Well, look, um, it's great to talk to you um, and it's great to hear your perspective. And uh, we're really grateful to you for joining us. Uh, Mary Porters, uh, the, the book is Rebuild, How to Thrive in the Kind economy thanks so much for joining us pleasure take care guys reasons to be cheerful with ed miliband and jeff lloyd is that the we're in the outro sound yeah it was a bit red to ghost wasn't it (laughs) It was a bit i've got um i've got a confession to make go on my heart was in the right place but i did a bad thing i went into my local bookshop and they have a table out of new non-fiction yes your book was on there yes but it was less prominently displayed than gordon brown's book <laughs> so i switched them round and then i went well, in a couple of days later and they remained how i left them well don't tell gordon i've never met the man but i uh, I, I would be terrified to all must have prizes here and uh, you know i want his book to do well too you want me to go and move it back then uh, that's obviously your decision <laughs> that's clearly you that's clearly that you know that's that's clearly a matter for you jeff i keep meaning to write one of those little review cards you know that you see in bookshops where staff members write their own personalized review i thought i could invent an alter ego who works in the bookshop and put it next to your book about how great good it is. idea i think all ascent listeners should do that and then you will have people working in bookshops up and down the country thinking i don't, I don't know that person do you do you know is that a colleague of ours i don't i don't recognize that name or if that sounds like a lot of effort, of course, you could always write in the re- review the book online wherever you got it. I know that is probably where most people got their books. All of this contingent on there being high ratings and good reviews, of course. Shall we, uh, shall we thank our guests? I'd like to thank Maeve Cohen, Sarah Arnold and George Gould. And thanks to Mary Portis. Her book is called Rebuild, How to Thrive in the New Kindness Economy. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Uh, Joel Pierce does all the research and finds the guests for us with backup from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed In Your Head. He's been Jeff in the Gutter. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 